0: about Thyatira and some of what we hear. But you'll notice in this passage there are some striking tangible images here of what is going on in this city called Thyatira. Up to this point many of the cities we've explored and looked at are prominent big cities. Strategic locations heavily influenced by the powers of Rome. Thyatira is a little smaller It's not quite as big, not quite as prominent, a little bit more remote. It's a small city, and yet it was full of wealthy trade guilds. When you are a city that is an outlier and far off, you've got to find some way to make your money and make your economy work. And so there were trade guilds of important items in this city, and it's important for you to keep that in mind as we move throughout the scripture today. I love the identification of Christ, first of all, as the son of God, the only reference to son of God in the entire book of Revelation, fascinating enough, the phrase son of God. But it is also the son of God is the one who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, eyes like flaming fire. I think if you were to go to a movie today or to watch some program on TV and there were a figure or character who had flaming eyes, that character probably would be the evil one, wouldn't you say? It's kind of intimidating whenever you see a character who has red eyes or fired eyes, and so that's not what we're talking about with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has eyes like fire, and yet the Fire itself could take on many forms. Most of the time in the scripture when we hear of fire or a burning fire, it's often not used in the most positive way. It is sometimes regarded as punishment. In this case, the fire is not so much like a lake of fire that we might read of elsewhere in Revelation, but it is a piercing flame, a mesmerizing flame flame Something that gives Jesus perfect understanding that can burn through any kind of cover or superficial understanding. The Greek word for this fire is not just a general sense of fire, but really more about a flame. A whirling, flickering flame that you can probably picture right now. I'm guessing that many of you are uh, putting fires into your fireplace this time of year. And if you go camping, this is something you'll see. Sometimes you can become mesmerized by the flame that is... Before you, I don't know if you've ever found yourself sitting around a bonfire or a campfire and just being enthralled by the flame and the way that the fire whips around and how powerful it is. And so it's very possible that when John says Jesus had eyes like a flame, it's, it's that Jesus brings us in, that Jesus grabs our attention, that Jesus has the power to help us pay attention to what he is saying. Of course, fire in the eyes is something that we might use in day-to-day conversation. You may have said to someone, you may have seen an athlete or someone on a mission and said, you had fire in your eyes that day, or you've got fire in your eyes, and we can interpret that as well, because Jesus comes with a mission and purpose in this book and throughout the entirety of the New Testament. And so this is also a testament that Jesus will not be stopped Jesus has come to execute justice and to see his will done. He will not be stopped. In many ways, Jesus comes to earth with fire in his eyes. And yet there's also the piercing flame, the flame that can burn through the surface. Christ has a perfect understanding. Christ can see through what's going on in the world, and guess what? Christ can see right through you and me. And so if we ever had ulterior motives in following the faith, if we ever were tempted by or sought to follow the ways of the world, we can rest assured that Jesus sees right through us to our hearts. And so we begin this letter with the understanding that Jesus mesmerizes us and brings us into focus and brings us into attention for him. He comes with intense purpose, and he sees what is going on. And so for the people at the church at Thyatira, their attention was commanded to listen to Jesus. A little bit more of an odd illustration of Jesus is that he wears shoes of burnished bronze I look forward every day to going home and especially this time of year and putting on house shoes they feel really good the opposite of putting on shoes of burnished bronze that's not something I would look forward to and so we have to make sense of Jesus wearing shoes or having feet of burnished bronze shoes are quite important wouldn't you say It might just be something we throw on in the morning and just make sure that they coordinate with the rest of our outfit. Many times, shoes just have a utilitarian purpose so that we don't have to walk around barefoot uh, out in the cold weather. But shoes serve a very important purpose, perhaps more than we give it credit for. Recently, uh, Valerie was uh, buying new running shoes. She runs several miles each week, and so her shoes tend to become more worn out. And when her running shoes become worn out, she can feel it in her back. She can feel it in her legs and in her knees. And see, that's not something I think about because I don't work out, in case you you couldn't tell. I don't work out very often. And so when I do, I say, well, I'll just go grab the tennis shoes I bought. I remember I bought them the summer before Maggie was born. So they're six years old. I'll go put those on. They'll be just fine. A serious athlete or someone who's a runner would not do that. They know and they can tell. It's like tires on a car when they go bad. You'd better get those replaced or you're going to cause some serious damage or you're going to risk your health. Shoes mean something. For the women in the room, I'm guessing that when you put on heels, you're not doing that for comfort. Am I right? Am I right? You're doing it for fashionable reasons, perhaps to make you a little taller, and that's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to try to figure out anymore about why anybody would wear heels, but from what I understand, heels are not the most utilitarian kind of shoe. If you're going to go out and work in the yard, you don't put on heels. If you need to make a trip to the mall to grab something, you're probably not going to put on heels. If you know you're going to be walking or going to the nature center or going, you're not going to put on heels, you're going to put something on that makes more sense. And so here's Jesus with feet or shoes of burnished bronze. And what we can learn about this is once again, we have to be careful trying to take Revelation too literally at times. What it is telling us is that Jesus wears and walks about His ministry with strength and stability. Something that is made of bronze that has been burned and refined is strong and unbreakable. And so taken together, we know that Jesus sees the evil of the world with the fire in his eyes and will march against it and have stability against it and will crush it until it is no more. I think sometimes we're tempted to gloss over the descriptions of Christ in this opening phrase, but for a people who were experiencing hardship and persecution, the temptation to practice emperor worship and to leave the faith, it was important in that opening line to hear who was bringing that message, who protected them, who gave them strength. The one with flaming eyes and burnished bronze goes on to give a commendation or a compliment he says I know your works your love your faith your service and your patient endurance and he says I know that your works are greater than the first meaning that unlike most of the churches the church at Thyatira had grown in their good works most of the time we're hearing about how the churches have fallen off the beaten path right They've lost their way. And yet Jesus here says, I know your love, faith, service, and endurance, and they're getting better. They're growing. The one with fire in his eyes recognizes these qualities, even though they seem hidden. You'll notice that qualities like love and faith and service and patient endurance aren't always measurable and put against the backdrop of society, these actions and these realities may be unrecognizable. In a place like the Roman Empire, love, faith, service, patient endurance, take it or leave it. In the Roman Empire you want money, you want status, you want military might, you want the ways of the Empire to be your ways and yet for Jesus, it was love, faith, deeds, service, perseverance. That, that is what means the most. I think as a church we can sit, sit here and acknowledge that. And yet we don't always look to those qualities as our most important metrics, do we? See, we like to measure things, <clears throat> anyone likes to measure metrics in a tangible way, and so we sometimes look at attendance or money or presence of young people or building appearance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and we think, <clears throat> I'm coming down with something apparently. We think that is what means the most. It doesn't mean things like attendance or our facilities or our finances don't have an important role to play. They do But how often do we ask about how is our love doing? How's the faith of our congregation doing this week? What's our service look like? Is First Baptist Church practicing patient endurance this year? Think if we could measure love. Think if we could measure service. Think if we could measure our perseverance. We may never be able to quantify that here at First Baptist Church, but we can rest assured that Jesus sees us. That's what Jesus is saying to the people at Thyatira. Jesus is almost saying, I see you. My eyes of fire, I I see through it all, and I see you're working hard. That's a compliment a church would like to hear. At times, we may not be able to recognize those things ourselves, but we can look to the fruit, we can look at the community and ask if they are experiencing the fruits of our love and faith and deeds and service and perseverance. And First Baptist Church, I think they are. Does that mean that we can't grow? No, there are plenty of places where we can grow in showing love and faith and, and endurance, But I believe, and when I ask this community and talk to people about First Baptist Church, they know. They see it. They know you are a people of love. They know you are a patient, enduring people. And for that, we give thanks. But not everything was perfect or going sm- smoothly at Thyatira. We read of a woman named Jezebel. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, which if you're doing the work of Revelation and always thinking about other parts of Scripture when you read this book, you will know that Christ is likely not referring to a woman in the congregation named Jezebel, but is referring back to the Jezebel of the Old Testament. It may simply be a kind of doctrine or temptation that has taken on this personality of Jezebel. It could have been a literal woman in the congregation who was leading people astray. Once again, not the first church to experience this kind of reality. And so what kind of behavior would have enticed this church to compromise and engage in sinful behavior? Well, those trade guilds that we talked about earlier, in the city of Tyra, there were trade guilds of wool workers, linen workers, garment makers, dyers, leather workers, tanners, potters, bakers, slave dealers, bronze smiths. We know all of these existed in the city of Tyra. And in order to participate in the wealthy trade of the city, you would have to become a member of one of these guilds. And so what would be entailed with that? Well, it would mean taking part in great wealthy lavish banquets likely eating foods sacrificed to idols and so someone in the church was saying you know you've you've got to make your living right join a trade guild eat the food sacrificed to idols ask for forgiveness later Jesus was saying, "Not so. This is not how you live out the faith in the church." The early church teaching was clear that no Christian may belong to a trade guild. We read of that in other sources and well, in other sources throughout the early church history. And yet, for all its' worth, a refusal to be a part of the guilds might put you out of a job. So this prophetess, this woman Jezebel, may have planted this idea that, hey, eating food sacrificed to idols, maybe not such a big deal if you can make a living, right? You can still claim Christ, but you can bend the rules a little bit. Upon reading the rest of this letter, we learn that Christ is most displeased when his followers pursue success by compromising their Christian identity. In many ways, that is one of the threads throughout the entire book of Revelation. There are so many points where God's people are tempted to lay their commitment aside. There are so many points where they're so close to getting it. They're so close to being faithful Christians, and yet maybe they found a way out here or there. Where they could enjoy the best of all Rome had to offer And yet, still be a part of the church. Jesus says, You must remain faithful. You must resist these temptations. And Jesus has the strength and the ability to lead the people through that. If they can overcome, when they overcome, Jesus says that they would become conquerors with Him. Once again, drawing some of that rich Old Testament history of having an iron rod. The end of the book of Revelation paints a beautiful picture of a union between heaven and earth. And so in many ways, this is getting at that union. That if we are able to overcome the temptations of the world and follow Jesus in the end, we will have that beautiful union with Christ. And yes, we will be made rulers with him to the one who conquers I will also give the morning star what is the morning star well you you see it just about every day you walk outside early it's 5 6 a.m. so we're almost getting to daylight and you know that bright morning star that for so long and for so long was used as a guiding star People could focus on that star and they would know where they could drive their ships or they would know where to go through the wilderness to reach their destination. The morning star, the guiding star. Jesus also says that the people would receive the morning star and by all means they needed it. This letter is a reminder that the people were in desperate need of guidance. And Jesus is saying, if you would simply follow in my ways, I will guide you to your destination. I will give you that morning star that will take you where you need to go. The morning star is also special for another reason, though. Because the morning star is what? It's the start of a new day. And so if we find ourselves wandering in the darkness, not seeing anything around us, wondering if we are going in the right direction, if we follow the morning star, we know that a new day is approaching. The people of Revelation needed to hear that. For they all felt that they were wandering around in the darkness of night with all of these influences and temptations to compromise the faith and so take a lesson from the early church and what they were dealing with and what they were seeing in the person of Christ the one with eyes like fire the one with feet like burnished bronze the one who would bring justice to the earth and who would give them the morning star that is our challenge today as well to receive the hope of guidance that comes from Jesus Christ, anticipating the day when this new day is upon us. For that, I celebrate, and we will continue to follow that morning star together. Let's pray.